0: Listening to the Central Station Podcast, where we bring you true stories of what life in the Outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home.
1: Lambu Station is unlike any of the other cattle stations we've spoken about on this podcast. Located just south of Halls Creek in the Kimberley region, Lamboo is owned by the Nundiwedi Aboriginal Corporation on behalf of the Jaru people. The property was purchased in 1994 by the then Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission through the WA Aboriginal Lands Trust and handed over to the Jaru people in the same year. At the time of the purchase of Lamboo Station, The primary focus of the WA government was to provide land for the Jari people on which to live, rather than as a business enterprise. Little attention was paid to the standard of infrastructure or the number and quality of the cattle that were included in the sale. For almost 30 years, the Nundiwedi Aboriginal Corporation has been trying to turn Lamboo into a viable pastoral enterprise, and it hasn't been smooth sailing in today's episode I'm speaking with Darryl and Gordon, who, quite frankly, is one of the most admirable, inspiring people that I know. Every time I catch up with Darilyn, I find myself sitting in awe at her resilient nature and the strength and conviction with which she speaks. Darilyn is a Jari woman who grew up on Lambu and is the current station manager. She came on the podcast to share some of her personal story, the story of Lambu, and the challenges and triumphs that lay ahead. To begin, I asked her to tell me about her earliest memories.
0: The first five years of my life was, yeah, spent at bush with mum and dad. Uh, They've taken us. Dad used to have a um, fencing contract at bush, so we was always out bush with mum taking care of us and dad out there fencing all that backcountry around Lambu, Ruby Plain Station. And then when we started yeah, getting close to starting school, mum and dad moved back to Lambu Station so we could be closer for um, accessing the bus into school. Yeah, mum and dad moved out of Lambu because it was getting a bit overcrowding. Like a lot of family lived on the station back then when we were small. Mum and dad owned a small horse block, old horse block um, on La- old Lambu, the homestead area. And mom and dad decided to move out there in, in, in another area called Brindadie. It's sort of like a rocky little hill flat area. And mom and dad decided to build a block there with little to no help sometimes. The two of them built us. Uh, dad found a hand-me-down canvas, which we were told back then was an old army um, canvas. So dad turned that into a big... Triangular shape tent and put sheet irons around it that fit. Like it was pretty long. It was like, I reckon good, maybe 10, 10 or more meters in. Um, just enough to sleep. My older sister, me, my younger brother, mum and dad, dogs would sleep outside. It was pretty tough to get water. We'd obviously sometime probably have to go down to the river, dig a soap, put it into gallon drums, come back and keep it cool. So it was like, Really, um, sort of rationing and, and saving a lot around food and water. Cause back then, mum and dad didn't have a reliable car to get in and out to do stuff. So we'd had a, um, a sort of like a unregistered vehicle that dad used for work around the station. Yeah. It was fun, really fun. I think the whole, um, mem- my memory of them, how we were getting the block sword. And it was just exciting. Like I didn't think of it when I go back and look at. And me- remember how things were. I'd think, wow, like who'd want to live like that? But it was the best thing ever. How they've um, and they made sure we were okay, so there was nothing to complain about. I'd say going out bush, spending a lot of time out bush, learning about you know st- stories that our old people. Dad and mom took us out a lot camping. My grandparents, they'd go prospecting, so we'd go camping with them. They are my best memories um, because we got to learn more about who we are, um, dreamtime stories, and also like our totem dreamings. Um, we call them jadans, so mom and dad would tell us stories about, yeah, our, our dreamtime dreaming stories and obviously exploring the country and getting to learn more about the area. So we lived at the block, so we'd go to and from, like back and forth to the station, if we needed to get maybe water, wash our clothes, or just go visit the grandparents, even if it meant jumping off the bus on the station and mum and dad picking us up and then going back to the block. For mum and dad, it was more about independent. It's just living sort of not in crowded space. They love, they they always like to be not a loner, but just sort of live independently so that they had more control of growing us up and spending more quality time. Because you can imagine. Living in an overcrowded space or house, it meant that you were amongst, you know, your other siblings and aunties and uncles and kids get together and they're all mischief and then the trying to get your kids disciplined and stuff can be a bit of a, a challenge. Mom and Dad liked the idea of living alone with us, but that didn't mean we were isolated. So we'd still visit the station. Like I said, when we started going to school to access school, we'd go to the station, catch the bus, we started learning how to, I guess, look after ourselves in some way. So we learned how to drive a car at a young age. So when it was safe to do so, mum and dad would just, yeah, let us jump in the car, drive ourselves over in the morning, catch the bus, come back. Because if, if they had to work around the block, then we'd obviously have to drive ourselves over to the station, catch the bus to school in the same way, going back home.
1: How did your parents meet? Was it your mother's side of the family or your father's side that was from Lambeau or or both of them?
0: My mother's side is from the, from um, from Lambu, um, but my dad's parents, my Mangoju and Galagi, they were in the area working long before, I guess, um, mum and dad were born. So they'd spent a lot of time around an area called Willy Willy in the back of old Lambu area. So they worked along there. My dad's dad, Galagi, he worked for the white pastoralists back then. So he was his right hand man, head stockman sort of. So all the, Getting workers together and sorting them out. That was, that was his role. So dad pretty much was born on that country and grew up, um, his whole life. And he still is there living to this day. And then mum, mum and mum and her siblings and parents moved to Port Hedland for a bit. They lived there a few years. I think they were back and forth for a bit from there. Then when my dad's dad, um, offered my mum's dad a job to go back to Lambu, they moved back. My, Jaja, mum's mum, she's from that area. So I I remember my Jaja and Jabi telling me um, Jaja was getting homesick and wanted to go home and it was the right timing that my dad's parents offered them a job back on country and so they didn't hesitate and went back. And mum went back to school in Halls Creek and years later
1: ended up meeting my dad. Tell me about your Jabi, which is – so that's your mum's father, your grandfather? Yeah.
0: So he was – um he was tough old like I should call him because he was he's originally from Derby area he was taken from Derby when he was six his mum's from um, the River, Bedford Downs area from what we were told um, and he was taken to Mulabula, uh, and was placed in the mission there and spent the rest of his upbringing on mulbula years later when he met my grandmother then he started wandering around working around the area so he really Built a name for himself. For us kids growing up, he was really hard on us, tough on us. He was, you know, you'd never get away with winding about a lolly if someone had more than you. You weren't allowed to miss school because education to him was very important. So you either had to have a broken leg to give you the excuse not to go to school, and mind you, you'd have to hide all day um, if you missed that bus because he would literally go and head count. Because he'd look on the bus and sometimes if he saw that one head missing from out of like maybe eight of us, then he'd go look in for, and he knew you'd miss school or miss the bus and you was in deep, deep trouble. So you'd have to hide out all day because that's how he, he, that's the person he was. He wouldn't let you get away with one thing. Um, same time, he was very loving and caring. Never really showed much of the loving because he was always tough love from him. But, um, the best storyteller ever. He, every time something would go wrong or something good or he wanted to settle us down, he'd just start telling a story. And that's kind of how he figured, um, storytelling was one way to get our attention. Uh, for me personally, he was my number one person. I just idolized him as a kid growing up. I loved his stories and was so fascinated because Every time he'd tell stories about how he was when he first started in the yards on the mission, from the old people he learned from and how he'd go from learning about culture, country, and then to breaking in horses and mustering was just, I think that gave me a lot of inspiration. And I just really looked up to him and just admired that person he was. And I still do to this day. I think a lot of his storytelling really shaped me into the person I always knew I wanted to
1: become. So after he left the mission, uh, and then I guess throughout his adult life, what kind of work did Javi do?
0: He drove, he was cattle droving all around the joint. There's, um, a few stories about him. Um, so he, you know, drove cattle all the way up to Queensland, um, up to Wyndham, worked for a lot of, um, pastoralists around the Kimberleys, even down in the Pilbara area. So he'd done done a lot of, um, cattle work in his time. He was, like, he was, um, there's stories that, Jaja and sometimes his children tell like I know mom tell us some stories about when he was drinking like all the past trauma he'd experienced growing up on the mission really deeply affected him and when he mixed with alcohol he'd get into a lot of trouble like you know fights with other people or sort of a bit of violence around his family um, and that was really hard for my grandmother because she was a non-smoker, non-drinker and never she was you know like she's full blood she never went to school she's always lived that bush her whole life and when she met Jabi I don't think she ever imagine that alcohol coming into the picture would really break, almost break families apart. And it did destroy, you know, the love that they had for each other, but that didn't sort of stop them from commit their commitment for each other and, you know, sticking it out until the end. Uh, but I can't say that it didn't because it definitely didn't. When he quit drinking, I think he was in his mid to late 30s, um, he was so against um, alcohol. But by then I don't think he knew how to really approach alcohol in his family because his kids obviously then started drinking and taking on almost falling into the same cycle. Um, so he was, yeah, he was big advocate and not wanting alcohol around um, children or his family, but it was kind of a, for us, I feel like a little bit too late by then when he did um, decide to stop drinking.
1: I love the story of Jabi doing the head count on the bus, making sure you guys are all going to school every I day. I do that now. <laughs> really? You do
0: that? <laughs> I do that now. I get real, I think I follow a lot after him because the fairness, the um, treating everybody the same and I guess the helping hand, I really follow the same principles that he once had on us and I'm a big thing on our kids going to school. Like all my nieces and nephew, literally if I see one of them missing school, I'm like, what's your reason for missing school? That's not good enough. You need to go to school. So that's, and then again, being fair, because when we were growing up, um, you know, we had the, um, the opportunity to be able to commit to school, but again, off our hand to help mustering when they were short of men or women to help around those stations. So I kind of cut some slack for the kids now, but it's more about understanding the bigger picture. So it's very different to how we got into it when we were, me and my cousins were, um, younger and getting into station work. It's more about these more understanding why we do it so that they do gain a lot more knowledge and experience. And I guess have the best, um, at everything as they learn and grow. Did you do all of your schooling in Halls Creek? Most of it, yeah. I did go to, I left Holtz Creek for at least two and a bit years. So I went down to Esperance. My older sister was there. So mum, um, thought it was a good idea to send me and school down in Esperance with my sister. Um, I struggled because of, the difference, the country was different, and I guess being around family all the time made me homesick, um, especially missing my grandparents because I was real attached to them. I didn't really like leaving them. But, yeah, I spent two and a bit years, almost three years um, away schooling from Holtz Creek, and then I guess I didn't really want to continue being away. I then went back and finished everything off in Holtz Creek.
1: Was it when you were down south that you started playing basketball or was that something? No, I
0: played basketball from a very young age, so we grew up playing sports. Me and my cousins, like sports was fun on the station, so we'd pick anything to do and then do it. Um, For me, that kind of playing basketball against my cousins and my younger brother, that sort of made me really develop early, like really quick, um, and I became really good at it. I uh, got a scholarship to go and play it professionally, but at the timing, I didn't really wasn't really in the right headspace. So I turned it, that opportunity down.
1: How did you? You would have been so young. How do you come to that decision? You know, it would have, you would have it, a decision, uh, an offer to go traveling to play sports professionally? Um and and I understand now like it was a very wise decision like you had such a strong connection to home and to country and to your family but as a young person that must have been a really exciting prospect
0: yeah I worked myself like I've that's all I ever wanted to do because I loved the station life I knew I could always go back to that and basketball like I did netball for a bit and you know was really successful at that too I think basketball is a bit more fun that's how I saw it then and I. That's all. Yeah. I, I remember telling my mom, I really want to play professionally. I really want. And then I think sometimes when you're a young person and you don't have a hundred percent, you're not committed a hundred percent and you don't have that full support, people really pushing you because they see, believe in you and they see the, I've only had like a handful. And I feel like that's kind of probably what influenced my decision on not wanting to continue with it. Cause I felt like, Oh, something's going to happen. I'm not going to come right back here. I don't really want to. So then the not knowing of where it would take me or how it would how it would be, and yeah, I think, and then there was a lot of family stuff going on too, so that again, that really um influenced my decision on, yeah, so I was kind of like a half and half that day I went in, had a meeting with him, and a guy that was gonna take on take me on and continue training me. It was really scary because I was like, oh, and I remember telling, asking him, you know, will I come back to visit my family? And he said, oh, you won't, you know, you've got to, you'll have got you be gone for a year and a bit. You won't be seeing them for a year. And I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I felt like if he didn't tell me then he lied to me, I would have gone that day.
1: So what was the next step for you then? So you're you're just kind of at that age where you're finishing school, you've closed that door to basketball. What did you think you were going to do or what did you want to do?
0: I didn't really know, like I didn't know what I wanted to do. I had no idea what was going to happen next. Um, not long after, I obviously found out I was going to be a mum, so I knew straight away I needed to find work to start providing and, and really bringing in an income. And I think that I thought, I told myself I'd just take it one step at a time, not think too far ahead and sort of just ground my feet a little and then plan this one out better. Knowing that I've missed, um, turned down opportunities, I knew I had to make this one right.
1: How old were you when you became a mum?
0: Just bef- bef- 17 turning 18, um, I became a young mum. And that was the not the hardest time of my life, but really like you bring in another little human being, it's like life gets realer for you. Um and for me it was like my granddad was literally in my ears straight away and telling me, Well now, you know, you've gotta really provide. You can't just stay at home do nothing like every other young mum's who or not even just young mum, but mums were just stay home like you can still do something for yourself. So he was really still big on I can do things and I don't have to feel like my life just ended because you're a mum now. What kind of jobs did you have? I ended up working for the local safe house, so the women's shelter in Creek. My boss then was Karen Wright, she was again really hard and tough but very loving and caring and really disciplined me and shaped my um I guess workplace expectation and really cam nutted in me earlier about you know work commitments and stuff like that and how to juggle being a mum and working so she was really good and very supportive was very um flexible in my hours so I could work and
1: provide and still be a stay-at-home mum. sort of thing so she was really supportive so that safe house, is that I suppose like a women's shelter? Yeah, women's shelter. So you're eighteen, nineteen. Eighteen by young, then, yeah. The young nineteen, yeah. Young mum one. and that would be an incredibly draining and taxing oh, it
0: was. role
1: to be in like very confronting as well. It
0: was, um, like I remember I hated leaving my son. Like my sisters were very, um, helpful. So I didn't need to, you know, try and find daycare or anything like that. So I had one of my best friend and my younger sister. They were really supportive and they'd, they've helped me right through the time that I was with Safe House. And I guess being honest with my employer and saying, look, I can't come in or I don't have a babysitter. I'm going to need my son for a few hours and stuff like that. So it's just, really teaching me early on the things that I needed to um step up and and be take control for my for my life pretty much because my our future depended on it. me and my son
1: what was your involvement with Lamboo during this time I was still just um sort of
0: going in and out living on the same Mum had a house in town by then um and I'd go and visit every now and then take my son to see my grandparents um weekends and I guess bush outings with that was my involvement. on During mustering season, I'd always still find myself going back. Couldn't do much because obviously I had to take care of my kid. Um, so it was just, you know, to, taking a drive and watching cattle come in or just looking from afar or taking him and pet the horses and stuff like that. So I didn't um, – yeah, I wasn't as heavily involved around that time.
1: Well, we're going to get to your journey, I suppose, becoming the station manager of Lambu a little bit later on, but before – that was even on your horizon, you started becoming more and more involved with Lamboo in like, say the last 10 years or seven, eight years. You yeah. Know, I'd you say
0: sp- eight years. Eight
1: years. When yeah. You started- eight
0: years now. So
1: how did that all come about?
0: I think cause no matter what it was that I was doing in town and traveling away from Lamboo, I should say, Holts Creek, um, my gut and my heart always knew I wanted to be still involved with the station life because that was my heart and soul before I've even gone and done anything else in my life Um, and it was just something about being around cattle and horses not just the therapeutic side but it just I, I don't know I felt early on this deep connection that wasn't going to happen straight away but somewhere down the line it was something else was going to pop up and be like you're back here sort of doing something a bit more but Before I've um, even thought about wanting to be a station manager with the station manager, I um, was just, yeah, I lived in town still. My partner and I back then, we lived in Hallsbury and we'd travel a lot. So we'd go to Darwin all the time and – um I was working in town, so I was doing a lot of odd job receptionists, um, admin assistant jobs. Um, I was so I was loving the, the community services space, so really getting more involved with community. That's from sporting associations to health organizations. So I really started building confidence in myself. Um and again, Javi was always by my side, really supporting me and pushing me and I guess he just knew early on the sort of person I was that he didn't want that part of me sort of not doing anything with it. So he was always big on, you know, just if if it's – Get, do something and even if it's not what you like you can always move on doing something different like you don't just have to stay in something for too long and get bored and tired and then lose you know the spirit or the passion about wanting to do other things move on and because you're never going to know what you want unless you start figuring out and having a go giving things a go so that that saying about you know don't say you can't do it if you haven't tried it sort of thing so i kind of applied that way of thinking into all the jobs i've started and i'd sort of get odd jobs and, you know, last for like six months or a year or two years and I felt that after a while I'd rather um, see myself, you know, in a job for two years or more at least than I was building enough um, understanding about how the services are, um, building all the confidence I needed, I guess, learning different skills and meeting new people, different people and learning a lot from others, not just from my family and what I was um what I'm used to, um, but stepping out of my comfort zone and really sort of, yeah, breaking down
1: personal barriers as well. So what was that first step to coming back to Lambo in more of a professional capacity? Was it when you – I know you got to do some courses, the grazing for profit courses. Was that sort of your first involvement kind of at a different level?
0: Yeah, so I, I don't know. Like I was always, you know, um working as a station hand, so just off, you know, providing – um help to the manager or the other station hand workers, which are, which are all family. My first involvement was, um, I guess applying to be a board of director for the station. So the station falls under an Aboriginal corporation and the Aboriginal corporation is run by its governance. And, um, I guess I wanted to start getting involved and understand the background. So I, I started out and I got into being a board of director and there I started learning about the background to the organize or to the corporation. And I could feel that I wanted to do more. And then when the grazing for profit um, training came up, my uncle asked if I wanted to do it. I said, oh, hell, yeah, I definitely want to do it because I read about what they provide in the training. And I was like, this is exactly the sort of learning I want to start getting myself into from there, I think that first Grazing for Profit, which was in 2016, was held in Kununurra. Some of us from around the Kimberley Cattle Stations, we all went to it. That would have been the first time it actually struck me that I actually wanted to continue this road and then hopefully, um, if it meant that I would get more um, skills and ex- build a bit more, um, yeah, skills in myself, that I'd, yeah, think about management. But at that time, I still wasn't thinking about management.
1: I suppose we should probably stop and establish how Lamboo works and how it came to be in your family and uh, how it works with an uh, Aboriginal corporation because it is quite uh, different to Mm. other structures or other stations around Australia. And so with how Lamboo came into your family, I'm just going to read out a sentence here that I picked up from a, uh, a case study. So it says, the property was purchased in 1994 by the then- Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission through the WA Aboriginal Lands Trust and handed over to the local people in that same year. So I suppose what I'd like to ask you about this is, so the land was purchased and given back to your people. How do you, and I'm just, I'm anticipating what other people may be thinking as well, but also what I'm curious about is, how do you know how many um, people you have and who I suppose can yeah how do you decide who is um
0: that's a good 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 point um by then, like before that it was even given back, my family was already living in the area. Um and so family groups were didn't have to be established. They were already living in the area and already knew about who was part of what area at the time. Um and when it was given back it was like with no hesitation the family came together and created what they call now a members to create the corporation sort of thing. So Having advocates like my two grandfathers, Jaja, uh, Jabi and Gilegi, that's my mum and dad's dads, they were very well-spoken people so they were able to interpret, you know, how, what was happening, the transition from working for the and then now taking back ownership of it. So they were still in the picture and the family groups were already still in the area when it was sort of given back.
1: I suppose I'm wondering, uh so say when the land was first handed back, there would have been, let's say, 30, 40 people. I'm just going to pick mm-hmm. that number. But as time goes on, the family will grow and grow and grow. And one day there may be three or 400. So I'm just wondering at when it gets to that point, how the station is, uh, supports and oh, provides yeah. like when the family keeps growing.
0: Yeah. Like, not. I mean, I think we're at like 200 to 300 right wow, now. Wow. Okay. I think I could be wrong, but I think there's like 200 and a bit. And a lot of what i'm seeing now with lambo is not everyone want to work on the station they might want to come back live in and visit the area but not necessarily want to work there there's a very handful of few of us that still you know want to be living and working in that space but for those who want to just come and be part of the season thing don't expect you know a financial income if we can um afford it and it's in the budget. We'd like to say, you know what, for you, you know, cause we appreciate what you did. Let's help with your fuel or what. so we find other ways to give back to them for helping out. But in the, our long term plan is eventually, you know, when there's family want to come back and live and work on country, hopefully by then we've got. Um, you know, we're economically viable, sustainable. The cattle industry is growing fast. So if we can really bring in and make a good profit and good turnovers, then I guess that's where we want to be hoping to aim for is being able to employ our own people back on country and, um, pr- producing cattle is not the only, um, thing we're looking at in terms of bringing back income so we can create employment for our people we're looking at other things like you know starting a ranges program and applying for funding so that we can if people rather do more on the land rather than with cattle then we've got two ways of really creating jobs for them and i guess partnering up with the local gold mine so that if people like more to work around machinery or admin so it's just creating opportunities where we see people wanting to work in that
1: space I want to read a little bit more from this case study just to give a bit more context to uh, Lambu because as an indigenous lease it really has come about under a very different set of circumstances to the uh, to the non-indigenous leases in the Kimberley. So this case study says at the time of the purchase of Lambu Station the primary focus of the WA government was to provide land for the Nundjewerri people on which to live rather than as a business enterprise little attention was paid to the standard of infrastructure or the number and quality of cattle that were included in the sale. So essentially from my understanding the land was given back to live on but it is a pastoral lease and to Mm. to keep that land you have to meet a certain criteria of, as as everybody does, to keep their pastoral leases, there's there's rules. So it's kind of a a two-headed gift or like a –
0: Yeah, it was –
1: like a double, double edged sword. Yeah. Like, here's your home, <laughs> but also he, you've got to. You've got to do this to, if you want to keep
0: living here. Yeah. yeah. My mum tells me a really, like a heartfelt story where she, exactly what you read is true because when they've given it back, we were told that, um mum tell a story like the, there was really, um, there's, you know, really few cattle, shorthorn cattle hardly anything to work with, so basically it was like giving back with hardly nothing to do anything with um, and only a few people knew what to sort of do to get things going and I guess when they made contact and I, I don't know if it was deep heard at the time but someone's come out and they had a yarn about it like Lamb was sitting what mum called was on a red flag like every year after that was just a struggle and they were barely making ends meet to pay for you know the lease to continue you know running cattle um so then they had to you know find other ways and the idea of subleasing to bring in extra financial help was kind of the only option for them and they signed a deal with i think was Ruby Plain back then Um, to get sublease money coming in to help out with income to then, you know, buy things and I guess pay for the lease and, and then started coming up with plans and how to grow the herd a little more. I think around then dad became the manager. So then there was a few things happening that was going well a bit. Um, but again, it was just struggling every year to get to where we are now.
1: So what are the, what have the challenges been from your perspective? for, for Lambu kind of from when it was given back to today?
0: When I think of it, like I – it really sh- – should I, am I allowed to say the word shit? Because it really shits me because I feel like it almost, to me, make me feel like they they wanted us to fail. They've set us up to fail. Like why would you just leave 300 or lesser cattle on an indigenous cattle station? You've been there working with these people for that long. You take everything with you and they got nothing to do anything with, no money, no nothing. And not everyone had – what, you know, the like we get rural uh, management training right now. None of that was happening back then for them. It was, you either got involved and talked with pastoral owners to get a bit of an idea and understanding so you knew how to run a business or it meant that you just have to start from scratch and figure the rest out yourself. And I feel like because of that road that my family has taken, it's really kind of been a, a trial and error thing every time Um, where it was gone from them saying that, you need, a, you need an Aboriginal corporation, first of all. You need to sign everybody up to be mem, to be members. And without even say, I'm providing them the right resources, the right training, um, someone who was able to, you know, um, uh, that understood the family structure for the area and, and figure out how this is going to work and, and who to support to get into these positions and whether it be, you know, a manager of manage, putting a manager in the beginning. I don't think that was the answer then. I felt like they've, they've really given it that structure, um, And sort of, um, yeah, road mapped it and said, this is where you are. This is where you need to get to. This is how you go about it. I don't feel like that was a lot of that was happening back then. Um, but with the little support that they did have, um, really got them to sort of create something that might wouldn't work nowadays because we do things different, but it really given us all these, um, trips and falls to get up and then sort of figure out a different way to do it.
1: So I I know you actually told me off air before we started recording today that another challenge that you've seen Lambu have over the last thirty odd years is capacity building. What do you mean by that? So capacity building I'm meaning like you know within within our um
0: sorry so I mentioned earlier Lambu. Is the trading name and it falls under Nunjuweti Aboriginal Corporation. Nunjuweti is overseen by our board of directors, which is our governance board. Um, lack of capacity building. If we're not getting the right training, um, to build our skills and knowledge in how to run the governance ourselves or be more responsible and take the ownership of, you know, running the cattle business. Then we're always going to be continuously relying on outside support. So yeah, where we, where we lack the right, where we lack the skills to run. Um, the governance or run the governance and business we in, we engage with, um, independent advisors and consultants. And I guess now the conversation is what used to not work. So as I mentioned earlier, what the challenges were early on in the years, now that I'm a lot older and more involved and, and now doing running the management side of things, I can reflect on what wasn't happening or what didn't be implemented in the first place to now saying, well, Every time we have an independent advisor and consultant, um, there's going to be that two-way le- learning so that when they leave, the skill sets are staying with us and we can build on that so that the long-term sees us being a lot more independent and um, can run the show independently, run the business independently.
1: How hard is it? I mean, running a family business, in like any kind of business anywhere in the world is hard dealing with families. But when you've got up to two, 300 people, you know, in your extended family, how does that impact running this business? It's like a circus (laughs) step. It's it's crazy. Like
0: I, I think before I signed up for managing, well, before I even wanted to say or tell myself that you know I really feel like I can I could do this. I also had that other on the other hand, my other side of me saying, are "You serious? Like, are you sure you want to be doing this? Because you're not just running the business; you also are responsible for the 200 odd members that falls under the Judy aboriginal corporation. And if you ask me, I would have rathered a different. Way that we're set up because this one is it kind of it's a little complex or like uh, comes with its complexity it comes with its challenges. I guess you're not just managing cattle and land; you're also got to manage people. That's how I feel in my case. So you're and it it it's, it it overloads because you're talking to so many people who think. Differently, So when there's, you know, every year we have an AGM annual general meeting. It's one of the compliance stuff through the corporation. And you feed back to members of how the business is operating, how is it going, are we tracking along really well. So you want to share successes, but you also, you know, want to find it in you to talk about what's not working so we can sort of um, find ways and put ideas into place to work on it so that we don't have to keep coming back to a halt. And that part I find is most challenging because, not every single family members who who have ties to Lambo understand how cattle business works. They think it's really easy. They come up and talk about things that you know you 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 want to bust the bubble, but you kind of have to find a sense of humor so it, a lot of the times I'm finding myself having to explain and give big mob of background information as to why we can't just give you money when you think you can come get money or You want a job every time you, or you think that there's a job all the time. Well, unfortunately, unless it's, unless it's the season, I can't really afford to pay you on in an off season because we're not a business. We're not in a position where financially we can employ more than 10 people every year. So we've got a budget and we have to stick to it because we'll run ourselves broke. So there's so many um, challenges and they change every time. So it's not always the same, but sometimes it can be. Um, the same thing we'd be talking about from five years ago.
1: So even if Lamboo was running at full capacity, making a profit, you know, everything was going as well as it could be. There's no way the business would be able to support two to 300 people. Like that, that's huge. So how does, how, what do you think is the, the balance of, um, people wanting to stay on country or near country and there being a lack of, of Employment opportunities. This isn't just for Lambu but anywhere, I suppose, in the Kimberley or rural parts of Australia for ind- for Indigenous or Aboriginal people. That there's a lot. You know, it, it it is important for many people to stay on country, um, but there aren't the jobs out there. So, what do you think that that balance is, or how, how do we find? these opportunities? Because I do hear sometimes with other um, indigenous stations or you hear things kind of put out in the media, that this is great. We'll be able to employ all these people. But as you've just said, like there is a limited number of jobs, especially mm-hmm. as technology gets better and better. Uh, farming and agricultural enterprises everywhere are using less and less people. And again, even if you could employ a lot of people, you know, two to 300, and that's just in your case, it, it's just not going to happen. So how do we for everyone else or the other people that want to stay out on country, how do we find a way for them to be independent, self-sufficient and empowered? That's so like
0: you're right because we have this con- – we talk about this all the time back home and, you know, like I can't – we don't have – like you think about station work. There's only a few. Like, you know, we're going to need, you know, a mechanic, a ball runner. Um, you had stockmen, then you station hand crew. And when we think of season work, like we've operated two of our masters already, like two seasons already. I've only worked off six to seven people. So I'm not going to need 20 something to 30 people on the station. And we're such a small, we sublease the southern section and in the northern area, it's such a small scale. Like we don't need a hundred people to come out and do jobs but where we if if a family so i i like to try and you know give people something to do if that's what if they got the initiative to, to wanting to do something so i'm not always turning them away from work but i'm very honest about what i can and can't do in terms of paying people and like i said look we've had permanent staff members who've been here for the last 10 12 years um they know the ins and outs they're going to be the people i'm going to rely and depend on most of the time so if you're going to Someone want to get if someone's gonna want to come and do something, it'll be us just saying like you know small to minor stuff that might not see them an in income, but give them something to do. And where lamb is very different, though, like we don't have a big community. I think in. Um, earlier on, when I sort of started tracking into this management space, we've, my family have all agreed that we don't want a community in the business. So where Lambo runs as a pastoral station, we don't have a community where all the family gonna want to come and live and think that there's gonna be job for them. Um, we have a highway. We've got the northern and the southern. They're split up by the great northern highway. And on the other side of the highway, opposite of the station, families are now building their own blocks. We can support them in developing the block, so they've got they still can live on country, so they can still live on country and do what they want to do on country and come and give a hand during our season work. Because if it's a good year and the market's really looking good and you know our turnover, then we could look at guaranteeing you know five more spots for someone. Um, Obviously, it wouldn't have to be full, it wouldn't be full time; it'll be part time, um, or casual, just enough so that that we can afford to pay them. But at the same time, it gives them something to do, but also encourage we encourage them. If they're going to live back on country, you know, it takes away the stress of, you know, um, rent and power and water, getting a job, they'd be able to save a lot too. Cause Holts Creek's pretty expensive town to live in. And I can see why a lot of family want to move back on country and live and assume that where there's a cattle, um, business, that there's going to be heaps of job. So I feel like. Giving a lot of family members, you know, a background where we sit right now financially and operationally for Lambert really gives them, um, more trust, but also more understanding of when they have to decide on where they're going to work, live and work. They got to want to be in an area where they can't afford or get an income because Lambert's just not there yet in providing them that. And. I appreciate that they're all very supportive and love how we've, you know, come so far in the space of three to four years. But again, we're still 10 years behind on where we want to be. And I guess all the hard work, you know, takes a lot of commitment. So for me, I want to work with people who can commit themselves to, you know, some year or some time of the month, some time in the year, we might not see ourselves for pay because we've worked three months and, can't pay ourselves, but again, it's promising in the new year if we set ourselves this year and then yeah, so it's it's there's just so much challenge. Again, it's just it gets bigger and bigger and deeper as we keep thinking about the sort of challenges. And it really varies from business to community
1: to family and to country and is what you're getting at then that so even if Lamboo was running at hundred percent, so you weren't subleasing and you were making as much money as you possibly could you wouldn't be able to be financially supporting 300 people. So is that. But you're able to offer people, they're, able, they're starting to build blocks so they can come back and live on country. But I suppose is the the other side to that then that you a certain amount of people will have to just get jobs in town or elsewhere, mm, like yes. Lambu can't yeah, employ and Landbu, everyone. Well, lucky because we're only half an hour drive
0: out of town and people can, you know, I've done it for so many years, lived on Lambu or in the block, as I should say. Um, And drive myself in and out of town just to work. I was getting an income and I was able to save because I wasn't paying rent and water. During the season work, I'd appreciate the station from the support or help I'd get from them when we were building the block by going and helping when they needed, when they desperately needed extra hand because I wasn't worrying about an income because I had an income, because I had a job in town. And I guess if you can, like we've always been encouraging that idea to family who've you know desperately said, I want to move back on country or definitely we'll help you where we can. But in terms of job, that. That's something you've got to work out for yourself in town where we can help. We will, but I guess you just don't want that to, you know, I don't, I've never wanted Lambo to be uh, a thing where family just heavily depend on Lambu And then you know, the burden, the extra burden we have to cop is from family wanting a bit too much than expected.
1: So there's no community on Lambu, which I know is different to many of the other Aboriginal leases in the Kimberley. So, Does the Jari people? Do they have a community somewhere else, or is everyone just kind of live in town? Like, there's no actual community, you know? We go out to other places.
0: Yeah. So there's a there's a a place called Mount Dockrell, um, in the back. So the southern area of um, so from Old Lambert Homestead, you travel that road takes you right to the back. So there was a community that was going to be. Um, they had a plan mapping everything that was going to, you know, put a school that was going to do everything out there and turn it into a community out there. But because of the distance and I guess the terrain of the country, like the ruggedness, the creek beds, you know, it was just not sort of re- like not sustainable for the kids that were growing up there in terms of edu- access to education and to health and everything else, every other services that family needed access to. So that's when they decided to shift and not sort of continue with doing the doing like building that place up as a community and moved it to the station. So from when I was little, I remember, you know, everyone lived on Lambu and it kind of worked well back then up until a point where I feel like the collision of family expectation and overriding the management and the business side of things, there had to be a point where or at a time where someone decided, well, this isn't working, we need to separate community so that family could still live on community and be part of family. But we can't have that interfering with the
1: running of the business daily business. You've been pretty passionate about getting some programs up and running at Lamboo. The first, uh, we'll talk about the one you've got going now in just a moment, but tell me about that first one that was actually your idea, which led you to win WA Rural Woman of the Year and you were the national runner up for Australian Rural Woman of the Year.
0: Yeah, that was, um, an interesting time, actually. It was pretty exciting because I really, so I've, the idea came about, so when I used to work for local government, I started doing like surveys with young people and asking questions like, why do you see yourself leaving your job? Like you've just applied for a job. You get it. Why do you see yourself leaving, you know, three months within the job? So there was this pattern that was constantly happening, you know, between the ages of 18 to 30, I should say. And it was just fascinating because I wanted to know well, why is it because there was at that time there was a few jobs being advertised that I, you know, really thought that the young people that I knew um would be perfect advocates for these roles um some took the jobs on and some sort of left like within 3 weeks or 3 months after um getting it and it was a constant conversation in community meetings you know like oh we need to provide more local people jobs and then there was the other argument of well oh, there's these jobs going and we've been encouraging but no one local wants to apply so then there it turns out that there's all this other underlying factors that were going on that just really made it harder for these for people to get jobs. And so with Lambu and and remembering what it's done for me and my siblings, and I looked at a lot of my siblings and sort of the jobs we've landed and how we are going and doing pretty good in our lives, I thought, like, Lambu is perfect. It's out of town. There's not a lot of distractions. We've got season work. We could provide, you know, station hand work experience. We could give them skills and not just station skills, but also the, you know, the, the building the confidence, building your self esteem, and overcoming personal barriers that we as local people know about without even having to talk about it we just know these things because so we can relate to them and so I Daisy Goodwin from DPIRD um her and I worked really closely because I started getting more involved with the station stuff and that's how I met her and she told me about the award that was up and then I told her about what it is I wanted to do and so she said oh well, we should give this a go so I was like nah Definitely not. Um, definitely wasn't sort of ready for that kind of a thing. Um, but then we ended up applying for a head coffee and then I put in the application and to my surprise ended up winning it. Cause there was the, the, I guess the, the reward of it, you get to win, you know, um, $10,000. I think, yeah, it was $10,000 I won. And with that money, like I still have that money, mind you, like there's bits of pieces of it that what we did over time and then, Conflict started happening on the station, so changes came about, changing around the structure. So we couldn't do the um, training program the following year after winning the award and then tried to do it in 2020, but then COVID kind of started coming. So still was on hold. But then this year we were able to just, um, you know, we've got like eight young people out on the station now doing so. And they're obviously have got family ties to Lampu as well, but what it's provided them with is something to do, re, you know, getting them to take themselves out of what wasn't working for them, place them on the station and then them freely um, be given some responsibilities and duties to do and just looking at how they're going about working on the station is just, I love it. Like I really feel like I'm doing something good for them. But these are ideas that's come from having conversation with young people and not just young people in general but other people as well. Like I said, you know, if there was something we could do, what could we do? And and not constantly talking about it but just Inviting them out, giving them a week on, you know, week when and then them sort of building the interest for them. So it's, it really, um, is showing some light, shedding some light on what's working and what's not working. But with the eight young people now, we're able to you know, talk about and plan again for the new year. And hopefully it continues to go like word of mouth is getting around. And I've had more people knocking on our door and saying, like, we've heard about what you're doing at Lambu. We'd like to get involved or how can we help in some way? So that's, that's really good. And I'd rather. You know, it, it be going, uh, go about it this way because the louder you get, the more noise you make, the more opinion people are going to be throwing at you like, oh, you shouldn't do it this way. I don't think that's the best way to go. You should also add this, like I'm done with that. I've been involved in that kind of conversation for the last 12 years. And I can tell you now, the quieter you get to do it, you achieve more because you, you know, you can really give people a chance without feeling like they're, they're, um, They're being watched or they're the the next statistics about another stats report they want to be adding into whatever program that they wanted to be doing. This is more about as organic it can be and what comes natural for young people from the talking to the way they work to the way they do go about themselves is, is what I want with less pressure less stress. It's almost like how you work with cattle, the less pressure and stress you can apply, the better it is to work with them. And I feel like that's the same way I like to be working with people.
1: You just said you've learned what has and hasn't worked. What are some of the things that you find isn't working? What doesn't work is,
0: you know, when you like, and I know a lot of us had these kinds of struggles. So the lack of cultural understanding, cultural knowledge they talk about, it's, it's compulsory for everyone to, you know, like, and I, when I say that it's, When young people or when people apply for jobs, you know, you get the induction, you work inductions. A lot of us are so excited about getting the job and not worrying about what really is going on at home and all this community stuff that's really, you know, on our backs. We just want to get in there, get the interview interview done and get the job. And then you do the job and then two, three weeks later you realize the problem at home didn't really go away. So then you start finding the struggle but you don't know how to talk about it to your employer to find a way for them want to give you the support or even find the balance and flex to help you get, find the balance and flexibility so that you can still show up and want to go to work rather than feel like I can't do it. I quit. I'm done. And then disappear without even letting them know, you know, where you went. So there's some of the things that we figured that doesn't so that when we talk about workplace induction, when I get the young people out, we talk about, you know, what's expected of them and vice versa. You know, how do you, when you need help, put your hands up, ask for, so, We've been there, like I've been in positions where I've felt like I can't ask for help or asking for questions is kind of a, you know, oh, put the shine light on me and you um, spot me out of a 100 people sort of thing. With this, it's I'm local. I know the issues. Um, we know how to go about trying to address our own problems, but it's building other people's capacity, what I've learned and all the skills and knowledge I've got, I'd love to keep passing them on and how I can do it in a a respectful but cultural way as well is, is very important for a lot of, you know, when we talk about boosting Indigenous employments in our communities or towns. It's finding an effective way to go about it. And the Rural Women's Award, it didn't really, it went on about the program But for me, it meant more than just winning the award. It was about everything else I wanted to do for my community and find another, an alternative way of, I guess, giving back to community. And and again, yeah, just another way of trying to create
1: opportunity. So this program that you put up for in the award isn't so much about just churning out the next generation of, of ringers or jackaroos. Uh, it's about building confidence and skills and capacity in your people and your community that they can then take on to other jobs and industries if if they choose so
0: exactly like it's it isn't and it's not just focus on the station work stuff like if i can help one person you know overcome anything that they've sort of held themselves back from and that's from little as greet and meet stuff to introducing yourself, comp- taking compliments and giving compliments to, you know, congratulating your rewarding yourself, giving yourself on the pat of the back, giving yourself a pat on the back sort of thing. Like they're the little things, but they mean so much more as well. Like anyone can go in and get told to do a job, but, I'd rather step-by-step step that that young person understands it, but again can reflect on how do I feel after being able to do something I thought I would never get to do. So self-reflections, you know, and and setting small goals for themselves, realistic goals, things that they can look back and probably measure from time to time. Like how am I tracking, oops, I've come across, a you know, a brick wall. How do I get around it or through it? What are some, who can I talk or reach out to? So it's them building those little skills because what we often do is, when we get stuck on something challenging, we either give up or, you know, like we just come to our stop. We don't actually challenge ourselves to think outside the box, step out of our comfort zone. Let me try something, do some, something different here. So it's, it's those little life skills to, um, basic personal building skills, all of that. So, you know, get a little bit of leadership skills in there. And we do that with the young people on Lambo where everyone takes turn on being a leader for a day and i guess when i do we do toolbox meeting we talk about it with everyone so everyone's on the same page there's no one like Title means nothing at the end of the day. We're all a team. Um, and we work as a team. We're there as a team and we enjoy it as a team at the end of the day. So if someone stuffs up, we all own the stuff up bit. Like no one will feel like you've made everybody's day even worse. Up. So it's, it's getting young, getting, and I'm sorry, I keep referring to young people, but it's getting people to sort of feel confident in themselves. And I guess know who they are when they stuff up, but also when they do good. So it's also
1: celebrating, you know,
0: yeah, little, little milestone achievements.
1: What's the current program? Uh, you've got something for horses that you're trying to pull together at the moment? So we, um, oh, that,
0: that one is, that's a separate thing. That, that's with the school. Um, that's not with this program, but we find that with these young people, they're actually showing a lot of interest in horse breaking and spending a lot of time around horses. So that's another idea, what we want to be able to sort of, Make it a bat on Lamboo. So not just our seasonal work and things we have to do to lead up to seasonal work, but what can we do sort of as a wind down for the rest of the year so that you don't just tell them to go home. They got stuff still happening for them that they, you know, it's, I look at them and I see that they're finding a purpose in themselves. And I feel like everyone who has, you know, some sense of purpose to do something in a day, I think that really gets you motivated or makes you feel like you're fulfilling your days. There's not a, um, you know, I'd hate to have a day where I feel, useless or not really can give or take sort of thing. I feel I start to get really frustrated at myself or a little bit miserable. So I sort of feed off what if I was a, you know, if I was someone and needed help, what would I want to be doing or whatever? It's just, yeah, thinking all kinds and, and really having, and I, what I love most about what I do and how I do work is, I love to reach out and yarn with a lot of people, not just in Lambu and Hall Street, but in places like, you know, I've got friends in the cattle industry, friends in the community sector, the health sector. So I just jump on social media and have a yarn or, you know, send a text and or catch up and just have yarns and see what others are doing and other and sharing these ideas and getting ideas as well and knowing what, you know, like what I want to take back and try out at Lambo. But I'm lucky because I can get to do that on Lambeau. Um We can really – um, adjust to it, or really add something new. And everyone's real, like laid back and easy with it. No one tells me why. Well, why did you tell me now? Like you should
1: tell me a day ago. It's not like that on Labu. How How did you come to be who and where you are? It a lot of it come from how I was raised, like when
0: growing up. Growing up, what it was like. Really, it was like in a tough but also like the most best and exciting times of my life. Um, we've always struggled. Like I've told you a bit about how Lamb struggled in the early days. It's kind of like my life. We we used struggled early on. Um, and because of those struggle I'm grateful for, it's made me, you know, be the person in making decisions what's going to better me. So if I want to change, how am I going to go about wanting change? And if it meant that I've got to, you know, lose a little, give a little, whatever it meant just because I want to change and to improve, you know, my health and well-being, but also you know, those around me, my family, then one of us, you know, stepping out of the, the cycle or stopping this, breaking the cycle, it's, you know, you, we, we I listen to a lot of media and read a lot of stuff and we talk about intergenerational trauma. My family is part of that. And um, when you think about all the other stuff that goes on with the suicide rates and, you know, poor health, poor education and everything, we're just in a cycle that is crying for good leaders good people to help us get out of it. And I think for me growing up on Lambo, like I've been involved where there was a lot of drug and alcohol violence and, um, you know, sometimes broken homes and whatnot. But it really made me want as a kid, I want a better life. And I've always told myself that every every year, every birthday, every Christmas, I'd always say I want a better life, I want a better life. So I knew what I had to do as I got older to get there. But not to forget, you know, the family and the people I had along the way that helped me up, you know, not just family but friends and school teachers and mentors and people I've worked with all had something that contributed to me making good choices for myself. And it really is that, and we've learned that back earlier in our childhood that, you know, it's making um, the right choices. And my hubby was big, big motivator on that. He was that person who really put us in our place and um, taught us respect um whenever we were ungrateful he'd always put us in our place and told us the time when he was little and on the mission what he didn't have and what happened to him so it that for me was like well, why am i complaining i've got my parents here i can go to school and not feel like i got no one and stuff like that so his a lot of his storytelling and sharing had really inspired me so as a kid you're very visionary and i'd always picture what it was like for him and where am i at um and it, I was, would have been 10, 11 and I could still do that kind of self reflection thing. So I've always reflected each day as I got older, all the achievements, all the mistakes, all the stuff that I got myself into trouble for. So all of that really shaped me. And, and I, I think I've always been someone who's always been caring. Like I've growing up around a lot of my parents always took in a lot of my cousins and nieces and nephews and in one in a three-bedroom house we would have over 15 16 people living in them and I've always been like um like the nurturer always caring and looking out for everybody so that hasn't changed I'm still that person I remember you know my niece and nephews or my nephews coming back from school and saying that they're behind on schoolwork so we'd play teacher games and I'd be the teacher and because I was doing really well in my class and, um, you know, got a lot of tutoring. So my teachers really pushed me to keep excelling in school. So I became, you know, the doctor, the teacher, um, the horse ride or te- well, everything, I was that person for my younger siblings and nephews and nieces. So I kind of loved the fact that being a leader in the household really gave me that response. I loved it. I really thrived for it all the time. So whenever mom and dad said that they were going away for the weekend or we needed to go here and do this and you're in charge, I'd love it. I'd step up to it all the time. So I was always thinking outside the box. It started early on in my life
1: and I'm still that person to this day. Seems like there's been, it's it's a bit of a natural progression then from being the leader in the household uh, and being given that responsibility to stepping up to be station manager. What has that been like for you? How has that transition gone? That would have been, well, that stuff is literally been like one
0: of my most challenging time in my life. Like, I can't believe how much I've grown, um, as a person, matured as a person. And, and just the way I guess I view from successes, achievements to actions to, I guess, um, what was the word I was going to say? Um, yeah, I've, I've, it's been very challenging. I've, it wasn't easy. I mean, you're breaking down you know, a female, a young Aboriginal female stepping into station management. I can't think of another Aboriginal female in my area that's done that or is currently doing that. I mean, it wasn't an easy road. I remember my sister telling me that, my family telling me that, and I remember telling my parents I really want to do, um, you know, I really want to step up to management. I feel like I'm ready. I've been doing all these training. I love it so much. I can't think of anyone else in the family who loved this just as much as I do. At the time of stepping into um, management, I was working for the WA police force. And I must tell you, honestly, working there has been my most memorable time. And I say that because it literally brought about a different kind of discipline. My way of thinking on how to handle issues is, is was it wasn't what it was like when I worked for the police. with the boss then... Dean Bailey, the OIC for the Holtz Creek police station, he would always say to me, take the emotions out of it. And I would never get, he used to do my head in. And I I used to tell him, what the hell do you mean by that? So I'd go to these family meetings going with all these emotions and, you know, I was ready to rip someone's head off. But him keep telling me that take the emotions out. It's just a normal conversation, picture it like it's a cup of tea. Everyone's coming for a morning tea and you want to have a nice, healthy yarn about an issue and you want to get through it together. If he had not introduced that way of tackling, I guess, conflicts, I wouldn't have known any other way than what I was used to. So because of that, I felt... I was really maturing and how I came about try- changing the mindset of people who've been in this position. And I guess in the industry, it's all men, like everybody I'm dealing with now is still men. And I guess it was going in and getting them to believe that a woman is capable of doing it and trusting, you know, me that I can do it. And I've had more conversation and trying to prove why I was capable enough. Um, and had, you know, the right, the right attitude, the mentality for it. And then when I eventually got the role, that got the job, um, the manager's job, I literally sat there and had a like a breakdown and thought I jumped all those hurdles just for a 10-minute briefing of, oh, you got the job. And I spent three and a half years fighting for what I thought was my right to be proven that I can do it. And, yeah, people say, how do you feel? And I'm like, nothing's changed. I still feel the same. Like I don't know what I'm supposed to be celebrating other than the fact that I know I'm in a leadership position and I'm very influential, so vocally I've got to, you know, collectively keep pushing and, and going in the direction we've always wanted to be going and think about the big picture and, and how Lambert deserves to have a good leader, someone who can really get us in that, move us in that direction.
1: What do you think will be the biggest challenge for you going forward? You've been manager for just over two years now at Lambo. What do you think is the biggest thing that you've got to overcome still?
0: I guess the mindset of some like of, of people thinking that you can't do it like I know I still feel that like whenever I think of a bigger picture and I tell family or tell staff and and, and other people are like this is where I picture Lambo in 10 years from now and everyone thinks that oh can we really get there well I believe we can because I believed that I was going to be a station manager my whole life and I am so all the impossibles are possibles now so I feel like sharing that journey and and, and those who want to be part of it, sharing it with them so we go as a group and not sort of alone, so you're not walking alone or you're not sort of wanting it for yourself is sort of the togetherness thing. Like I talk about it with my sisters and my auntie and like I literally, like they understand the struggles literally because I say to them, you know, I can't and I have to like I'm so blunt that I'll say to them, I can't believe I have to talk a little louder to get them to listen to me or I have to get off the rails and walk into the yards so or i've got to go to a car and print up because no one still at the the because i'm a female and people still underestimate the, the the amount of knowledge i got and the skills and the the fact that my can do attitude is like do not tell me i'm i can't do it because i literally will do it not because i'm trying to make it like oh don't tell a woman she can't do it it's more like don't, yeah, don't treat me like that. Like, you know, if it was a man, if it was my other brother coming and you just literally walk together hand in hand, don't do that to me sort of thing. Like it's still those little things that I find can be frustrating, but it's taking that step back to, I guess, breathe a little to then when you move, it, when I step forward, it's not coming in with the emotion attachment. Like I don't want to make it personal. It's, you know, I I'm, unfortunately it's one
1: of those things where it'll take a while to sort of break those mindsets. How do you balance this? I know you mentioned off there before that part of this transition into becoming station manager during that time, your relationship with your child's father ended. Mm. Um, so you're now a single mum to a 12 year old and, and just the fact that you've been raising a kid this whole time. Uh, you know, how, how do you juggle being a mum and also trying to, you know you do everything else you've been doing whether it's the jobs you've had in town um, the courses you've been going to pushing for this for your vision for Lamboo how do you find that balance oh my goodness
0: I don't think I've found it yet I feel like I'm close to finding it what I do know that I've really found my feet in it I can communication isn't just with you know, the the crew on Lambu or people I do work business with, it's also with your family. Like so with my son, for example, you know, he's we're a team now, so I have to let him know what I'm doing and why I'm doing it because of him, for him and for the next generation really so that the cycle everybody keeps talking about that we need to keep breaking. I feel like we've already broke that cycle in my family. So there's not an excuse someone – I don't like when people come with the excuse and say we can't do it or – um, this person shouldn't chase opportunities because it just doesn't fit in our Our expectations are more than what that it's not about that anymore it's it's more about if I've gone above and beyond to make things happen for me and still be able to put up with everything that's been going and then there's nothing in front of me that can stop me from continuously doing things good for myself I want the same way for my kid and my nieces and nephew and other siblings and I just want to be able to, you know, like i just taking away all the excuses. Like all my life, people just keep throwing excuses, excuses. I don't do this because, don't do that because like no one's given, no one's actually told me until my javi started telling me that, well, if you believe it and if you think you can, then do it. If he did not, I'd be stuck in the same cycle. So because of him changing the way he spoke to me is kind of like what I do now with everyone else I talk to. It's like, well, take away all the excuses. Why do you think you can't do it? And then they get to question themselves, actually, no, nothing's really stopping me. So then the more people you can keep encouraging that kind of conversation, imagine how much more cycles we can break. And for my son, he's my biggest motivator and my biggest driver. From the minute he came into this world, he's literally all the reasons why I needed to be better and do better with myself, my life, and obviously be that role model, just like how my parents were for me when when I was growing up. And, I listen to a lot of other families and I'm involved in a lot of community organizations and committees and talks and we all talk about, you know, we need more role models, we need more leaders and uh, oh, you know, role modeling should start in the homes and So yeah, finding that balance is like you're never gonna know like I've never known I was gonna sign up for all this work. Like I can't believe how many things I'm you know, involved in and how many people want a piece of me to be able to work with me. Um I just asking for help when I know I need it. So I'm not going to act like I've got my shit together because sometimes in some days I don't. Where there was so much successes and achievements, I've had also the same amount of fall downs and setbacks because of, you know, one, people not, you know, believing or people doubting you or people just negative toxicness. And so I, I found the balance to know the energy I need by removing myself from anything that Don't do me any good. Now I'm much hard headed and stronger in saying, nope, I don't want to be part of that. Count me out. I don't want any bar of it. I know what I need to do and what I don't need to be doing when it comes to me wanting to live a life that I see myself, you know, in, and I only want the best for me and my son and my family and the community. So I feel like, yeah, what I do, I'm hoping, you know, I'm in hope that other people can, yeah, do the same. How do you look after yourself? Looking after myself, <laughs> I don't even know how I look after myself. Uh, I do know that I do get a lot of um, me time more than I've ever had to. Um Going back on country, with it, we've got more horses now on Lambus, so we can just, you know, horses have always been a therapeutic thing. But going out bush and really touching back to reality, you know, talking to our people and asking them for strength and guidance and telling them, sharing them what we're doing is for the better because of them, I'm able to have this life. I'm able to have access to country, yeah, mental health, emotional health and spiritual health. And I guess I'm much more better at knowing what's going wrong in my life and knowing how to you know, reaching out. I've got, you know, close friends and families that I trust sitting down and really um, unwinding or venting to that I trust that isn't going to really turn to shit show. Um, but it's also spending more time with my son and I guess getting out on country and just going camping, fishing, swimming, all of that sort of stuff. It just does more good than harm. Um, and then it's just knowing when is enough is enough because as a leader, the expectations from community and others can be very demanding so it's knowing, you know, when to say no and just sort of take time out from all that because it's not going to go away. It's just you need to sort of, yeah, re-energize yourself, reset.
1: If you could turn back time and talk to your 18-year-old self, what would you tell her?
0: I would tell her – I literally actually wrote a letter to her eighteen when I was 18 and when I was 25 and I literally said some of what I'm doing now is kind of happening but – Definitely be prepared, like be open to learning, like grow and learn and don't be afraid. Like literally, if anything I'm most proud of is never feeling afraid to take on you. And I've I think I've told myself that when I was 18, not to be afraid. Um,
1: yeah, just to keep moving forward. To finish up, looking back on your life so far, what would you say is the most important lesson that you've learned?
0: Oh, The most important lesson. The most important lessons, I guess, were, you know, taking the risk. Like, I've lost out on my relationship of 12 years, all because I had a dream and vision that this is what I wanted to do. And it obviously costed me, not costed me my relationship, but it really put a lot of pressure. Um, I don't know why I've sort of, yeah, I just knew that taking risk were going to be part of my life and I've taken more risk and literally like I still ended up very happy and I guess was okay with myself in making that decision. The, the risk taking part was definitely is what I was used to doing. Like literally everything I've done was always taking the risk. No one's ever done this before in my family. I'm literally the only female in the air and constantly still takes risk. Um But that would definitely be I've gotten really good experiences from risk-taking and also saw a lot of bad experiences from risk-taking. But it's always allowed me to, I guess, find myself. It's really opened up so many doors in my life to figure out who I am as a person and continue to grow to be because that's something a lot of people struggle with. They get to do all these thing, wonderful things or sometimes just things in general where um, when you get so, you step so far up into leadership, like I felt like there was such a, it's always been my dream to be in leadership, just not to the point where I am in, you know, a really big role where I'm responsible for a lot of people and a lot of, you know, daily operation on the station. But you're what you tend to lose your way to yourself along the way. And I feel like if I'd not taken these risks, I wouldn't have got to know who I am as a person. What are my strengths? What are my weaknesses? Um, What am I most afraid of? And, yeah, I feel like being a risk taker has really allowed me to explore more who I am. And now I feel I know who I am and I guess I'm still growing and learning more, but I'm definitely not afraid to keep going.